0: Well, thank you, Dean. My name is Jim Hahn, if we haven't gotten to meet yet. And I'm the youth director here at South Charlotte Presbyterian. It is my joy to be able to preach to you all this morning. So join with me. We'll be again in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Again, that's chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And now also stand with me as we come to hear the word of God together. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house Will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever Blasphemes, they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, we give honor and respect to your authority. And today we come to your word and we ask that you would show us your glory, that you would help us to trust you and help us to give our hearts unto you, for you are our Lord and Savior. Blessed be your name. Be with me now as we go to your word. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Teamwork makes the dream work. This was my mom's favorite phrase to say to me growing up. Especially because I was the only boy in a household with three other older sisters. Uh, And if you are the only son in a family, you probably imagine there were a lot of arguments that were had. So my mom wanted us to be united as a family. And in order to really make this work, she would actually make me and my sisters run around the block together whenever we were angry. On top of this, we'd actually have to hold hands (laughs) so that I would have to work through any anger I had at them. Or, if any of them made fun of me, or vice versa, which never happened, uh, we'd have to say three nice things about each other. Now, Grant, as you can imagine, this led to some problems uh, in itself, but my mom had the right heart in this. She wanted our family to be a team, to have unity and respect. And as we can probably tell, unity is hard to find in our world today, isn't it? And today, it feels like we have very little common ground to stand upon. It feels like our country is more divided than ever. Why does it feel like we as humans love to create division? Why do we love to section ourselves off from each other? And unfortunately, this is something we see in the church, too. I don't have to tell you that there are tons of different denominations out there. And even within ours, the PCA, tons of churches face division. So where should we go as Christians to find that unity then? What foundation can we stand upon? Well, Jesus gave us a great answer in Mark chapter 3, which we have read today. In fact, that we're supposed to find unity in his authority alone. So join with me as we stand together in this. Join with me as we look at three important truths about Jesus' authority today. Firstly, that Jesus' power is from God in heaven. Secondly, that Christ is able to overpower Satan and take back all the enemy has stolen. Then thirdly, his mercy is enough to be given to all those who seek it. So let's start with this first point for today, that Jesus' power is unlimited and from God in heaven. If you've been joining us the last few weeks, you've probably noticed even in the early chapters of Mark, Jesus is already revealing his authority. Notice back in chapter two, where Jesus healed the paralytic. But not only that, he forgave his sins, which is something God alone could only do. Then in chapter three, we see Jesus actually heal on the Sabbath, cast out multiple demons, and even declare himself Lord over this day. And then on top of all of this, he lets the disciples perform miracles in his name. It's clear God was speaking through Jesus. In fact, God was showing his true and wonderful glory through his son. But the Pharisees, or the scribes as we see them in this passage, saw what Jesus was doing and became defensive. They thought they were God's chosen leaders, not this humble man from Galilee. They saw him claim divine authority and they became defensive and felt threatened. So in order to stop Jesus' ministry, we actually see them make a political move against him. We would call this a smear campaign today, but they were trying to attack Jesus' character directly. Notice with me how they do this in verse 22. They say Jesus was possessed by the prince of demons, and they even referred to him as Beelzebul. Now this title, Beelzebul, was given to a pagan god in their culture, which the Jews referred to as the Lord of Flies. So by calling Jesus Bezebel, they were saying, you're not the son of God. You're only a ruler over dead and decaying things. They were essentially mocking Jesus. They were saying, your teachings aren't bringing people life. They're bringing people death and destruction. Now, Jesus hears their accusations. Instead of trying to attack their character back, he instead chooses to respond logically to them. Notice this in verse 23. He asks them rhetorically, How can Satan cast out Satan? How can a kingdom that is divided against itself even stand? Then in verse 26, he follows this up by saying, If Satan attacks himself, he will be his own worst enemy. So the question for us then is, If they really believed Jesus was from the enemy, why did it look like everything he was doing was moving against what Satan would want? Remember what Jesus' ministry was about. It was about bringing people mercy. It was about teaching the strong to serve the weak. These qualities Satan wouldn't have wanted to be grown in the people of God. They're qualities he doesn't want to be grown in your life today. For us to look at the way Christ loved and to say he's on the side of the enemy would like me trying to walk up to a fireman and tell him, you're trying to help the fire burn down my house, right? When you look at a fireman, the things he has, the tools he uses, it's clear his intentions are to eliminate the fire. Notice he uses a fire axe to break down a burning building to save people trapped inside. Or he uses a water hose to douse the flames. Or they take part in a fire hydrant to make sure they have enough water to save a whole neighborhood. To try to argue otherwise would be illogical, for a fireman is coming to deliver people from death, to deliver people from fears of losing their loved ones and their property. And that's the same kind of heart that Jesus has for us. He wants to deliver us from evil, to deliver us from the flames. And he does this with authority from God in heaven, here, Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, when he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. See, Jesus wasn't promoting the lies of the enemy. He wanted to show the truth of God. He wanted us to be able to see the full character of our creator through the way he lived his life. In a lot of ways, Jesus is the best lens we can use to know who God is. For us to ignore this opportunity would be like for you to struggle with nearsightedness but refuse to wear glasses. Now, I must admit, I actually have to wear glasses when I drive. And that's a really good just image that I'm getting older, Uh, especially when I drive, because if I got behind the wheel right now, I would probably crash into someone. It would not be safe for anyone involved. In the same way, friends, if we reject the opportunity to know God through Jesus, we're missing an amazing way to know who God is fully. Because you might be able to take things about God from nature or maybe the good from others. But if we never go to Christ, we're destined to misunderstand God's mercy. We're destined to misunderstand what he wants to bring to our lives. We're destined to crash into legalism in comparison, just like the Pharisees did. Remember, the Pharisees thought they understood who God was completely. Yet when the son of God was right next to them, they claimed he was from Satan. Let's not make that same mistake. Let's go to the word of God, to his son, to see who he is clearly for us today. Let's look at what he desires. You see, Christ wanted to help those who are hurting in his society. He came to serve the poor and weak. Those desires should be in our heart. He came to spread truth. That passion should be in us. He also came to forgive those who are hardest to love. I would encourage you, friends and myself, we need to be better at showing that forgiveness. We need to be willing to forgive even the one who has hurt us deeply because that is the way that Christ is calling us to forgiveness. Now, God did not just come to show power through his Son. Jesus didn't just come to show the character of his Father. He also came back to save us from our own selves, to save us from our sin. And that really brings us to our second main point today, that Christ is able to overpower Satan and rescue his people. You see, the Pharisees thought Jesus was their enemy. But in actuality, he's our greatest champion. We see this in verse 27, where he clarifies that he has come to take back what Satan has stolen. And that treasure is you and me. And he speaks this through a parable. He says in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder the house. You see, Christ is this champion. Christ is the one who can come in and bind the strong man who has tried to overpower us. And this strong man is clearly Satan, our enemy. He has come to deliver us from death, that we can be alive in him. He can fully atone for our disobedience. Now, the question becomes then, how did Jesus actually bind Satan? What did he do to actually accomplish this? Well, he did two huge things. Firstly, he faced temptation on our behalf and denied it. Remember back to what Dean taught us a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus went out into the wilderness, and he went without food or water for 40 days. Imagine going a few weeks without food. You would probably be hungry. You'd probably be physically weak. Jesus was probably at his weakest physically that we see him throughout his whole ministry. And in this moment, Satan came before him. He tried to tempt him, but Jesus stood his ground. And because of this, we see Jesus had victory over the deceiver. And this victory he had in the desert is our victory now. He was standing in our place Where we surely would have failed, Christ was all the more faithful. But he followed this up by also giving his life for us. He gave his life on the cross so you and me can have forgiveness. When we come to God in repentance, we're not just acknowledging our fault. God is also meeting us in that moment. He makes it so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees us as holy, blameless, and worthy of love. And I know this is the type of redemption we're all hungering for, isn't it? We know just how short we fall from God's glory at times. I feel like in a lot of ways, when I try to compare my righteousness to Christ, it would be like in a very different way comparing my basketball skills to Michael Jordan in his prime. If you're like me, trying to make a layup in a basketball game is a big deal, okay? And then making a three-point shot is like nothing short of a miracle for me. But if I'm on Michael Jordan's team, I will be able to pass the ball to him whenever I need to. In fact, he would make up for my missed free throws, which I definitely would have. Uh, (laughs) He would be able to defeat the enemy for me. He would be able to make up for all that I lack. But not only that, I would be a better player if I was on his team. I could follow in his footsteps on the court. In the same way, though, Christ does so much more for us. He steps into the brokenness of our life, he makes up for everything we lack when it comes to being wonderful representations of our Creator. When I look to Christ, I can be forgiven, but I also can be led to be more like him. Friends, scripture tells us that when you believe in God, His spirit lives in you. And yes, that spirit brings us to conviction. It leads us to recognize when we sin, but it also grows us to want to be more like God. And it can move against our enemy. Satan is helpless against the Holy Spirit that lives in each of us right now. Notice how Jesus dealt with the demons that he saw in his ministry. He cast them out, yes, but after he casted them out, They couldn't help but declare his glory. They fell before him and declared his glorious name, that he was the son of God. Friends, that's the same champion that is in your heart today. That is the friend that is following you every single day, no matter what you face. Now, I know at times it can be hard to really believe God can deliver us. We might come to church. We might praise his name. We may give glory to him. But when we go into the real world, when we face real pain, real brokenness, we really have to ask ourselves, do I really believe God is with me? When I face tragedy in my own life, I know at times I have asked myself this. If you've been in a place where you've lost a dream or lost a loved one, or you've seen division in your family that feels unreconcilable, I want you to know that God is still with you in that, even if it's hard to trust. I want you to know that God right now knows your pain and he wants to sit with you in it. He wants to weep with you in what makes you weep. But also hear clearly that he is standing beside you and he will not depart from you. Scripture tells us when we believe his spirit is in us and it will never depart from us. So right now, it's our call to trust him. It's our call to understand that his ways are not our ways. And that right now, I need to trust his process. Yes, his desire is for us to live our life to the fullest, but we need to know what living our life to the fullest in God means. It means even if every other joy in my life is stripped away, I still have a reason to carry on because I'm living in Christ alone. That is your call today, to live in him. So I encourage you, if you're grieving right now, or you're facing doubt, or you're facing pain, please be willing to bring it to God. He doesn't want you to ignore it. He wants to sit with you in it. Be honest with him. Be vulnerable with him. He wants to be in your life. He wants you to know that he is with you. Now, perhaps maybe for you, the struggle is not trusting God's strength. It's trusting that his mercy is enough. Maybe you've looked at your life before and you thought, can I really be forgiven for all the ways I've fallen short? Does my history somehow devalue what I believe? Well, if that is where you are today, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to come to me, come with me to our second or a third point for us, and that Jesus' mercy is enough for all those who seek it. Jesus is so direct in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins a man will be forgiven in whatever blasphemes they utter. He's essentially saying, even your darkest moments of sin, where you have dishonored God in your heart, even those moments can be forgiven by my mercy. I want you all to know, sin is not shocking to God. He knows the darkest parts of our heart. In fact, Jesus knew every way we would dishonor him before going to the cross. But yet he took it on willingly. He knew how we would fall short and he came to solve our heart problem. So if today you felt like you have done too much, if you question your salvation right now, I want you to be encouraged. Jesus has paid it all. He has done enough for each of us to repent, to be forgiven, and to leave this building knowing that he has defeated sin forever. You can put all your fears upon him about your salvation because he tells you, you are my child. I will never leave you. I will forgive you. I want each of you to know, especially if you're not a believer this morning, There is nothing you can do to diminish the value of Jesus' sacrifice. But there's also nothing you can do to add to it. We are never going to be in a place where we become too righteous not to need God. You're also never going to be in a place where you are too distant from Him not to be welcomed back if you're willing to forgive. The truth about both of these realities that we need to understand is that we as believers must be willing to ask forgiveness. We must be willing to come to God and say, I have sinned. I have fallen short and I need you to take control. You see, the Pharisees were unwilling to do this. They didn't think they needed Jesus's mercy. They didn't think they needed God to step in their lives. They thought they already had it figured out. And we see this in verse 29, where Jesus tells them, you are not valuing my mercy. So in that, you are blaspheming my Holy Spirit. Notice this in verse 29. He says, "'Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit "'never has forgiveness, "'but is guilty of an eternal sin.'" Now, friends, on paper, this verse sounds really scary. We might misinterpret what is going on here and ask ourselves, is there some simple phrase I can say that will condemn me? Have I unknowingly blasphemed the Holy Spirit in the past, and it doesn't matter how much I believe now? But I would say in these fears, don't miss what Jesus is truly saying here. He's saying that the person who believes God is his enemy, the person who believes that God is working against humanity and is not good, will never come to a place in their heart where they want to ask repentance. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit means I decide that I want to live apart from God, that I see him as my enemy who I do not trust. In other words, it's a settled life apart from God our Father. And the tragedy of this is that people who decide to settle apart from him miss the beautiful gift he's offering, the gift that he will give to all those who come to receive it. So if you are in a place where you are worried over where God is with you right now, I want you to hear the words of John 6, 37. That I've had to read to myself time and time again, where Jesus states clearly, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So friends, if you trust in Jesus's redemption, if you have repented of your sins, if you have put faith in Christ, you are not in this unforgivable sin. In fact, the stress you might feel over it probably shows that you are not currently living it. The true signs of faith are this, that you give glory to God or you desire to want to give glory to God, and you realize your need for a Savior. I think the hardest part for us is to believe that God is still moving in our lives when we realize just how sinful we can be. I think we have this idea that the more mature we get in our faith, the more righteous we'll feel and the less like we think we need God's sacrifice on the cross. But the reality is, friends, the more mature you grow in your faith, the more and more you're going to realize just how broken you are and how we all need Jesus' cross. So today, if you feel conviction in your hearts, that's the Holy Spirit working in your life. God is moving in in your heart. He is with you. I'll pray that you believe that his mercies are new for you every morning. If you pray that I believe that also. So in closing today, let's find unity in his love. Let's trust that he has bound the strong man for us. And let's be willing to share that hope. Let's be willing to show mercy even to those who cut us and hurt us. And let's rejoice in this beautiful salvation or redemption of Jesus, not just last week on Easter, but every day of our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening this morning. Let me pray for you now. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you. I pray that you would teach us to submit to you, Lord. I pray that you would teach us to value your authority in our lives. And I pray, God, that we would know that your mercy is enough You saw our heart condition. You were willing to step in. So I pray we would come to you with our full selves and that we would be willing to trust and that you would embrace us. In your name, amen.